Historically, pandemics have been watershed moments in reshaping the nature of citizen-state relations. In this core sense, the challenges thrown together by the coronavirus pandemic in present times are no different. History will repeat itself. One of the ways in which this relationship is being reshaped is through the deployment of digital technology as a key instrument for disease surveillance. Testing, contact tracing, isolation. These are the three pillars by which the nation states are being encouraged to control the pandemic. While these may well be necessary, they do raise very fundamental questions about the nature of citizen-state relations, particularly around questions of civil liberties and the debate on privacy. India today is no different. The debates, particularly around the use of the Aroge Setu app, are beginning to unfold. And as the story of the coronavirus pandemic uh, plays out in the Indian nation state, this fundamental question of the dynamics of state-society relations and the nature of surveillance is going to shape the future of India. Hello and welcome. I am Yamini Ayer and you are listening to the eighth episode of the Center for Policy Research's Thought Space on the unfolding coronavirus pandemic. To discuss this key issue of digital technology, data and privacy and the implications of excessive surveillance in the context of the pandemic, I have today with me Dr. Anand Padmanabhan, Visiting Fellow at the Center for Policy Research and Dean of the Daksha Fellowship, and Sahil Dio, Co-Founder of CPC Analytics and Faculty at Daksha. A very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you, Yami. Technology is playing a crucial role as a surveillance tool for testing and contact tracing, as I mentioned in the introduction. We're also hearing of innovative ways in which governments uh, across the country are using technology, GPS technology, uh, through mobile phones uh, as a means of tracking um, citizens who are in quarantine, who are in home isolation. But also technology is being used as a very, very important vehicle for innovation that can support the healthcare system. To give our listeners a sense of the lay of the land, Anand, can I ask you to tell us how technology is being deployed and what is so unique about this particular moment? Sure, Yami. So I think uh, before we get into the kind of technological solutions uh, we are engaging with here, uh, let's take a step back and look at the four pillars, right, which are considered the backbone of effective response strategies by the WHO. Uh, testing, isolation, tracing, contact tracing, basically, and then finally, of course, the treatment. Right now, I think where uh, digital technologies have really sort of come into play in terms of addressing uh, COVID challenges is on, on phase two and three, on pillar two and three, the isolation part and the contact tracing. Right. So on the testing itself, we are really reliant on a very vibrant public health system. And uh, in fact, I think the, a lot of the success in, in addressing uh, COVID will finally go to testing and, and the ability to do it at a rapid pace till, of course, we find a vaccine for this uh, virus. Uh, uh, but there again, the role of digital 
is is important in the sense that it can help you prioritize who are the individuals who could be tested because resources are limited right so for instance if you look at something like the arogya setu app to jump straight mm-hmm. into uh, one of the controversial products out there uh, about which we will of course speak a little more in during this conversation uh, i think the self you know checking in right and mentioning whether you have certain you know uh, symptoms and so on really sort of helps in prioritizing from the public health system's point of view as to who should get tested first and who next similarly for instance if you were to mine through all the travel data which was particularly important till the lockdown became effective or two weeks into the lockdown because now of course nobody is really doing air travel uh, but in the initial phases i think that could have definitely made a huge impact in terms of prioritizing right then of course we get into the a uh, question of using technology in a more central kind of manner and that's where we come to questions of isolation and contract tracing now on on isolation uh, though the way we have currently uh, thought about it is using a panoply of different kinds of technologies right so facial recognition so all the selfie that individuals are taking finally is uh, is uh, blended in with some kind of facial recognition technology uh, some bit of geo tagging abilities uh, which then help you to geofence an individual right so by insisting that people are uh, downloading this particular app once they've been asked to self quarantine and that they upload their photographs every hour or 2 hours whatever be the pain which it's executed uh, what the state is doing effectively is to make use of these uh, technologies that are uh, really uh, you know at, have been at our wherewithal really in the past 4 or 5 years and have increasingly been used for law enforcement and so on to make use of these technologies to ensure that uh, there is the ability to algorithmically evaluate whether people are uh, following the quarantine order and if there is any red flag that comes up then of course to point out that and uh, of course there has to be then a physical intervention at some point or the other to enforce the quarantine measure the contact tracing mechanism really works in two different ways i think one is of course to understand at an aggregated level right how the disease is spreading and then to create some degree of uh, uh contact tracing at a community level so for instance it could work out that you know you have uh, certain zones where there is more possibility of uh, individuals susceptible to covid because already you know four or five individuals in that region have been diagnosed or many more people have been diagnosed depending on the overall spread in that community right and then based on that to uh, trace the movement of uh, or the spread of the virus in that region and the second aspect of it is more granular which is individuals who have been identified to be more susceptible or have already been tested positive and who are they then in contact with finally of course when it comes to treatment as i mentioned you know uh, right now there, there is some innovation happening in terms of fast production of uh, face masks and you know other protective gear which uh, can be used by healthcare providers in a particular but also by citizenry more generally but of course the biggest innovation in this space will be the vaccine itself uh, now taking a step back to look at uh, contact tracing uh, because i think this is where uh, a lot of 
innovation or at least application of innovations that we are already familiar with have happened so primarily this is happening in three different ways one is just uh, methods of analyzing raw health data right so running pattern ana analytics uh, through health data to identify the spread of the virus uh, the second is gps uh, technologies and using gps technologies which then mean that we are not reliant on access to smartphones so either it can be gps data or cellular data uh, right so even if in on a feature phone you make a call right it's pinging with a tower so it's easy basically to work with cellular uh, providers to understand uh, location of individuals not to an extremely granular manner we must make that clear but at least you know the broad region where the individual is uh, located within 500 meters or so right so then of course that helps in uh, tracking the spread of uh, the disease and the third is uh, of course uh, bluetooth beacons and uh, there we are reliant on smartphone technology and finally we have the contact tracing apps themselves right so now even the contact tracing apps will cause at some point rely on your gps or your bluetooth uh, to track the individual uh, so you download the app uh, something like what arugya setu is doing exactly that or trace together in singapore right uh, so th these are the different ways in which uh, tracing is currently operating thank you anant i think you've really laid out the the range of technologies that are being deployed and so effectively linked them to different aspects of how we are tackling the pandemic both in terms of building our own understanding of it but also the most critical aspect the four pillars as you described them that are being deployed by governments across the world uh, to get a better understanding of the prevalence of the disease as well as to ensure that we have systems in place uh, to to better handle the disease in the sort of testing contract tracing isolating uh, sahil i know you've been also working very closely with the government of maharashtra so from a sort of on ground perspective if you could give us a sense of the kind of technologies that are being deployed and also the kind of innovations uh, that are being developed uh, or perhaps on a minute to minute by basis that will i think be quite insightful for our listeners so i i just taking a step back from what anand said and and the immediate question that yamini had i i feel we should break down these database interventions into two parts one is those that focus more on saving lives and the other being more on the economic aspect or the livelihood aspect so let's let's first start with the the former so within the the interventions that are aimed at the health dimension of this pandemic i i feel there are three layers to it right like the first layer is the patient herself or himself the second being that the individuals that this person has come in contact with while as the third is the broader public right and and which would then include policy makers the government agencies etc so what anand described in great detail i would say lie in the first two aspects of these which imply the patients and the individuals that these patients came in contact with 
so adding to that i think the third layer is also important where data is being used so when i say data i mean data analysis is being used to aggregate the different kind of information we have that comes in uh, from the ground up into certain insights that are useful and can be made actionable right so now now coming back to what we're doing in maharashtra so one of the interventions is in collaboration with idare uh, in geneva uh, which is headed by amandeep gill so there what we are doing is we are trying to plug in micro narratives and hyper local data and trying to build models that are extremely contextual right so we we feel that the approach to this should be decentralized in nature and each locality eventually should have an understanding of of what's happening there and what kind of decisions they should be doing in in that locality should be driven out of data coming to the other vertical of livelihood we are basically involved in scenario planning which again uses hyper local data and tries to lay out the options that the government in maharashtra but also at a city level has with regards to lifting of the lockdown right so that's that's a question that a lot of people have been asking themselves as to what would happen after the 3rd of may so we we are trying to build scenarios around that thank you both this has been such an insightful understanding of the landscape of how technology is being used as a tool for innovation uh, as well as uh, for governments to be able to gain a better understanding of the nature of the epidemic and potentially control it uh, but it does raise even as both of you were speaking uh, it raised for me very very critical questions about the potential consequences of this kind of deployment of technology after all the state has a monopoly over violence and when the state has access to this kind of data unchecked absent a rights regime it raises very very critical questions about the potential powers being of the state being misused and since you've been looking at this question of the relationship between citizens um, and data citizens and technology Uh, and the kind of legal frameworks that are needed to protect rights uh, could you give us a uh, some understanding of the analytical tools we need with which to pass through this very complicated question so i think uh, the first sort of division uh, there is between what we call a uh, statutory protection like a data protection law right and what the constitution guarantees us by way of fundamental rights in fact lot of debates that i have been a part of or been following uh, one one answer that keeps coming up that oh, we don't have a data protection law and therefore you know uh, we we have been under prepared to deal with these concerns of privacy uh, and to that my response is actually been that even if we had that data protection law right of course we have a bill and uh, that bill may become an act uh, soon uh, and the the point is that even if we did have that there would be suitable exceptions so let's just go back to the puttaswami wording because that's where i think the fundamental right of privacy itself is laid out right even in puttaswami in 2017 
the supreme court had made it clear that if there is an epidemic and so on there uh, uh, there is of course need to have carve outs for the right to privacy there is no absolute right as such and we need in larger public interest to carve out uh, uh, but of course subject to certain safeguards so the oh, real sorry, anand anand can i just stop you there because that's a very important point so in a sense uh, the the argument is or the legal reasoning is that there are critical exceptions uh, exceptional circumstances where rights can be suspended right and how does one then determine the nature of those exceptions i mean exceptions often can be misused so are there safeguards in the legal reasoning for that right so i mean i would not uh, use the term suspended because i still think that we are operating in a zone right now at least where we still have to evaluate everything on the basis of whether it's a restriction on the right uh, but uh, if you go back to the court's uh, verdict what what it does allow the state to do is really sort of restrict based on the kind of situation that we are confronted with right so finally there is this one expression or test right the proportionality doctrine so you have something like the right to privacy uh, of course now unanimously the court says it is a fundamental right but uh, having said that uh, the court says yes there must be a law that allows you to restrict that particular right there should be valid grounds on which you know that restriction operates and most importantly that even if there, you you have the power to restrict that particular right it should still be a proportionate uh, kind of restriction now everything really hinges on how you evaluate this proportionality right so this can happen and this i think is really the crux of this whole debate uh, because there are two different ways you can look at it you can look at it in a very granular manner take each particular app for instance right and then say look this particular app violates your right to privacy or does not violate because of xyz reasons right another way you can look at it is to really evaluate it from a more larger picture perspective right and this for instance was really borne out in the aadhar challenge so if we may uh, sort of recap a little bit the 2017 verdict of the supreme court in puttaswami came in the context of the aadhar challenge and then of course it was applied one year down the line when the court looked into the aadhar uh, system itself and as we all know the majority upheld it and the dissent by justice chandrachud struck it down right the majority when it looked at aadhar really sort of looked at it in a very isolated ecosystem right and sort of said look there is this biometric project if this biometric project is being used used for certain purposes and when it is being used for this purpose of you know dole out of welfare subsidies and uh, some identification and authentication uh, schemes we are going to limit the extent to which you are using it we are going to limit the storage of metadata for instance the period during which you are going to use the metadata and so on and so forth this is exactly how a data protection law works a data protection law basically looks at one technology one vendor or one data processing uh, situation and then says you know in this particular context these are the things that you need to do so what are those things we all now have a broad understanding of these things because this conversation has gone on for a while in our country uh, what we call data minimization purpose minimization accuracy right for instance that a citizen can really go and uh, check uh, with the data processing entity as to what all they are doing with that individual's data 
and of course bring some granularity in the kinds of data right for instance health data is a sensitive personal data now the question that i think we must really be asking yamini is uh, is this going to really work when we talk about a larger scale surveillance you know mechanism right do we ask this kind of question in terms of data minimization purpose minimization consent architecture or we do we ask a very different question now going back to the aadhar uh, debate right there i think that's exactly what the court the majority at least failed to ask and which the petitioners had highlighted uh, which is to say that if you take a uh, the, the european privacy jurisprudence right it is richer in some sense because the way they ask these questions is to say look this particular project then combined with two or three other projects that are operating right then combined with the governance architecture that you may have or you know the, the the way that you know you are gathering all this data and acting on it does it lead to a surveillance architecture so they are asking a more uh, i mean a broader question really so they they are looking at it very differently it's not one arogya setu app or one you know uh, cobody app or uh, similar you know solutions right they are asking in the panoply of various you know uh, services that you are providing when you read all of this together what is the kind of architecture that you are putting in place now perhaps the reason the supreme court did not ask this question is because we haven't done it too much in the past right if you look at our privacy jurisprudence itself it really comes from a particular context of one police uh, station maintaining domiciliary records about one charge sheet so we are really developing our privacy jurisprudence going back to a khadak singh case and so on of history sheeters and and all these you know kinds of very isolated instances of citizen rights being violated at an individual level there have of course been a few cases of telephone tapping and so on but even those were not about institutional architecture which could gather all this data as a society basically lower the privacy baseline so what a system like an aadhar did or what today the these various apps in in conjunction with each other can potentially result in is an architecture which lowers the privacy baseline as a whole across society so i think we need to now develop tests to address this problem so i'll stop here but and we can come back on what these tests could be and how we could think about this uh, problem but but this really i think is the challenge from a rights point of view on thinking about this problem thanks anand i think you've so beautifully laid this out and given us a fairly uh, deep understanding from from a jurisprudence perspective um, and the legal frame questions around the legal framework sahil i know you wanted to come in uh, do you, uh, do you want to come in now on this particular issue i i would just like to add from a point of view of a technologist i would try to break this uh, into three parts one is the possibility of constructive approaches to this the second being the underlying technological and data complexities that exist and the third being the role of large firms in executing all of this right so so firstly i feel data scientists and tech technologists genuinely want to help right like they, like this is affecting all of us so mm-hmm. unlike certain other situations it's definitely not a us versus them uh kind of a scenario right? uh adding to what anand said i think there are certain approaches to algorithmic development such as the open algorithms approach 
that was put forth by the MIT Media Lab in 2016, which basically tries to send code to the data, right? Instead of pulling data into the algorithm, what what that means is, say in India you have the KRA, right, which is the KYC uh, registration agency that stores all your KYC data, and that can be then pulled as and when needed. Right? So what this means is there is availability of audit and control to to the user whose data this is. Approaches are being explored as we speak that are constructive in nature, that by design try to respect privacy, maintain logs of data used, seek explicit consent. Right. So, so all is not dark. Right. The, coming to the second point of complexity, since we are speaking a lot about uh, contact tracing, I, I want to just bring out one point. Say I uh, happen to be uh, COVID positive today, right? and like the test results uh, come out today, but I might have had this at least for the last 14 days. So in that case, this app or whatever intervention that's being used needs to track people I met retrospectively. Right, so this inherently makes contact tracing very challenging. Right, it it doesn't start the day you download an app or a government agency decides to track movement. Right, so that's one complexity on the front of how it works. The other thing being, Apple and Google came together, I think, which was pretty historic to build a contact tracing project that's based on Bluetooth. Essentially. So 300 odd uh, academics wrote a letter, uh, like a joint public letter supporting this initiative, which I think is excellent. But in spite of this, and in spite of two brilliant tech firms doing this, 57% of all active devices, so we roughly have three and a half billion smartphones that are active by now, 57% of these would not be able to use this technology, right? just because they are older, etc. So what this means is that this is a genuinely complex problem, even from the point of view of data science and technology. So we should not think of this as a magic solution that would work all the time, etc. Right? So, that, so I, I would not like uh, us to feel that way. And, and the third point of the role of large firms, right? So as, as we see now, Google is involved, Apple is involved, Facebook is involved, because all, all of them have different kinds of location data, large telecom firms are involved, etc. So we do typically have some amount of mistrust towards large firms. But what we need to understand is that the kind of ability they would have to decimate these solutions across geographies, very few other mediums would have. So Anand, actually, I think uh, uh, Sahil's intervention raises some very, very important points on, in terms of the perspective of the innovator and the need for space to evolve in a way that is meaningful and dynamic. Uh, how does this 
uh, perspective then interplay with the challenge of rights and the question of the kind of legal regimes that we need to build? So I think it can actually be balanced quite well. Uh, because I mean, I've been looking at uh, some of these responses from the technology end as well. Uh, for instance, privacy preserving methods of, you know, contact tracing apps. Uh, and and we, can, we can get into some of the technical details. I mean, like, for instance, that there are temporary identifiers that are created when the Bluetooth handshake happens between two different phones, thereby never resulting in a scenario where you can actually identify the uh, person it is much more about you know like uh, the anonymized kind of you know data that you have about individuals therefore you can actually just evaluate where the contact is happening much more than who the person is and and things like that so i mean these these solutions exist uh, but i think really where we need to guide innovators in this whole uh, scenario and that that's where i would go back to the state and demand of the state in fact that it it brings in much clearer guidelines on some of these uh, uh, technologies right so because at the end of the day i don't expect the innovator to bring in these guidelines even if you as an innovator were to operate on open protocols and uh, the the code is made available as an open source you know uh, code available for evaluation by the community uh, even if you bring in some of these privacy protecting or preserving safeguards like anonymization and temporary identifiers the real worry i think is actually a different one which is the trust deficit that many of us may have with the state right for instance arugya setu my issue is not at all with the developer Right. I mean, I think they have done a fantastic job under the constraints that, you know, they were placed with to come out with this uh, uh, solution. My issue is more with the manner in which the state is driving this whole exercise. So let's, for instance, look at uh, who, who, in the, who in the state is the Nodal Ministry. It's the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology with uh, very few individuals, at least in public. I don't I haven't seen anybody really from the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare. Right. So, I mean, why is this happening? Right. Why is this whole technology deployment happening much more like a Ministry of Home Affairs or a Ministry of Electronics supervised project, even if, of course, there is great innovation happening at the back end. Right. And I think that's where the state has actually a much larger role to play in assuring us that, look, I mean, even if uh, the technology vendors are private actors and so on, there is a strong governance backbone that we have built in here. Uh, and this, in fact, was really my issue with Aadhaar as well. It was not really the fact that it was developed by a private vendor or something. I mean, I personally don't see that as a problem in itself. So again, what is the kind of governance that we are talking about here? For instance, assurance about what is the purpose for which you are going to put all of this data for use? Is there a some is there some kind of a sunset clause, right? For instance, uh, not just for data retention, but also more broadly on the purposes for which you are going to put put this data to use at a at any given point in time. Who is going to see this data, and what is the supervisory mechanism within the state, right? And these are major lapses that we have seen both with the Aadhaar Act and even with the Data Protection Bill in terms of how the Data Protection Authority is structured. And I have written a fair bit about this in the past. So I think going back to a clearer idea of separation of powers 
and entities within the state that are firewalled from seeing this particular data and the ones that are handling this data i think those are ways in which we can actually guide innovation better and provide more confidence so i think that really is how we promote innovation while bringing in that trust factor i mean and wherever that trust factor is not built in you can see that these solutions are not working iran for instance is a very good example they have tried out some of these uh, solutions but citizens are very reluctant to download the app so arogya setu as we know today is still a very consensual like i mean mechanism right and i mean of course we have seen a huge uh, you know download rate for that particular app there are various reasons i'm sure for that but uh, still 50 million is really nothing right for this particular app to work well it, we are talking about much larger numbers and of course there is a the whole issue of feature phone and smartphone but even keeping that aside for a minute i think the critical mass has to be much larger in a country with our you know population size and i'm not sure whether we'll see that unless this trust deficit is addressed in a serious manner and this is not only to do with arogya setu right for instance this whole controversy that came up recently with kerala government and use of sprinkler because sprinkler had provided this platform to manage uh, the health data now sprinkler as a company that's not their core business i mean they are a saas platform but they do other various other things that is their core expertise so why was sprinkler picked right so these these things raise a needle of doubt and then you know naturally there is a political angle to all of this and uh, i think as citizens for us to have a trust uh, we need a better governance guidance coming from the state so the trust issue you point out anant is is so important because uh, it it sort of relates to this larger question of the broader governance and institutional environment that mediates citizen state relations can i push both of you on this deeper philosophical question about the nature of the boundaries of citizen state relations and citizen market relations how should we interpret what's going on today you know what kinds of questions should we uh, we be asking ourselves about the reshaping of these relations and what implications will they likely have uh, when we emerge from this pandemic Uh, so i will broadly focus on the state citizen aspect because uh, you know that's something that has been quite fascinatingly playing out i mean before all of this right which was the one society that could do everything that we are now doing china right and if you look you look at the chinese uh, story it is basically deployment of a complex of various technologies uh you know on top of the already existing high degree of control and the absence of specific uh you know rights you know to protect citizens against this kind of might of the state right now what covid in some sense has done at a at a deeper level is to make the state somewhat of an entity like the chinese state and not it's not just the case in india i think in in many Uh, countries you know because that's just the way we now see this problem being addressed right and what that then means is forget issues like privacy and so on really the might of the state be used to make huge trade offs right trade offs like for instance livelihood trade offs that we have now seen right with the my life versus livelihood one stark example of that playing out was the migrant uh, crisis right and uh while i am no expert on 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 the migration uh, problem itself and uh, you know questions of their economic security uh, it was evident to anybody right looking at this scenario that 
the state is just very muscularly asserting and there are no questions really being asked on this because this is a problem there is a certain segment that needs to be protected and we are going to protect them and this is how we are going to do it right so now the, all of this that we were talking about the apps and the contact tracing measures and the quarantine measures and all of that is nothing but in some sense a manifestation that of that internal understanding that the state is now sort of bringing to the table now the question really remains that what happens once all of this drags over right i mean is it is it is there going to be a rollback or is it going to sort of get uh, remain the same or is it going to get worse now i think the answer to that will depend really at least to the, because i still think of this as institutions checking each other right i think we will have to look at how the judiciary sort of interprets rights right and uh, sort of looks at this as a very unnatural or uh, really unforeseen kind of circumstance where the might of the state was asserted without us having that kind of liberty perhaps to ask these questions but now that you know the situation is over you still have to provide answers and you still have to uh, change your operation vis-a-vis the citizen but where i think this is going to really uh, become difficult is the behavioral impact that all of this has on the citizen right so like now the citizen is seeing the indian state in a very different manner right after 49 days of lockdown right for many of us you know who have been used to rights in a certain manner right uh, and who were for instance where before this general lockdown finding fault with uh, many of these uh, you know solutions like this quarantine app and so on suddenly when everybody is in lockdown and that that goes on let's say for 40 days or whatever right you then look at all of this very very differently right i mean and this i'm just speaking from a layman's perspective i mean just looking at me as a citizen and suddenly you know thinking about what has changed vis-a-vis the indian state or the state government right i mean suddenly i'm unable to ask the same questions that used to come naturally to me as a lawyer and as a citizen because you just feel that look the state may be a mightier entity than we imagined and it's sort of we shaping its relationship with the citizen so there is a huge behavioral impact and i think that will take some time to shake off and and in some cases some in case of some people you know we may be able to shake it off better but uh, with a with a certain segment of the population no no right i mean uh, who feel that they benefited from the lockdown uh, they may see the, they may perceive the state itself very differently and that perception can then result in very different kinds of answers for the citizen state interaction of course all the apps and all the other things that are that the state is doing or promoting can be part of that institutional architecture or uh, technology architecture complex which which supports that internally but i think it's a larger sort of question of what the state means to you right and that part itself could could really change is, is my sort of hunch sahil uh, would you like to come in here just to offer your reflections on uh, the relationship between the state and the private sector the state and the innovator but also what this means for the dynamic that's evolving between the citizen whose data forms the basis of uh, the the kind of innovation that uh, is unfolding yeah so like on a lighter note it's it's interesting that we uh, speak about this today because 
given how the oil prices have behaved yesterday and the fact that data is the new oil i uh, find this interesting so <laughs> so now oil data is a new oil oil is a new data <laughs> <laughs> so i i what, what i would like to add to what anand said and is the relations between citizens and the private sector around data as well right so what this lockdown has meant in different parts of the world is that internet based firms say in the field of edtech for example have given off their services uh, for free with certain riders during these conditions take for example a berlin based firm that helps you learn a new language they have offered to give off their service for free for one month so see i am the user of this service and i i would not generally use this but now given that it's free i i tend to use it i use it for one month and then i want to switch to another app that is cheaper than this app but might not have given one month of free usage because they are not venture funded right so there i i wonder what kind of legal mechanisms we could bring in place that allows me as a user to export behavioral data from this app that i used for one month and take along my behavior to another app that doesn't make me start from point 0 but takes me pretty close to the point where i left the first app right so i i think such questions would be very important beyond the role of the state which are restricted to citizens and the private sector but would start emerging right because i wonder to what extent the lockdown would be lifted or if there would be another lockdown or what not so we might have to move to a digital space where a lot of interactions are digital rather than physical so i i feel even from a philosophical standpoint we would have to re-question what amount of monopoly does the private sector have on our behavioral data absolutely i think whenever we emerge from this we're going to see a very different kind of relationship evolve between our everyday lives and technology sahil i wanted to ask you one question about technology uh, as an enabler uh, given all the work that you are doing with data to be able to better uh, understand the nature of the disease itself there are so many unknowns uh, in covid-19 um, and the kind of uh, da- granular le- data analysis that you are doing is really helping give get, helping us get a much much deeper insight uh, into um, the everyday dynamics of this disease could you give our listeners some sense of how innovation in technology is enabling this real time da- data analysis uh, of the disease and what role this is playing in the uh, empowering policy makers to make evidence based decisions yeah so i think in that sense these are pretty spectacular times i i would have so i am a resident of pune I would have never expected the Pune district administration to post on Twitter three times a day as to what are the latest statistics with regards to the lives 
uh, aspect of this pandemic right so i i i feel certain city administrations as well as certain states and the central government are mm-hmm. trying their very best to aggregate data in a timely manner and put it out uh, i must say that i cannot ignore the politics of it but definitely i i would say that a serious effort is being made with regards to the livelihood part of this right so in my personal opinion i feel that we as a society living in india need to relook at our macroeconomic indicators and try to use other data sets which would allow us to build proxy indicators that are more frequent than certain macroeconomic indicators that tend to be released once a month or in three months or in a year so i feel and i'm very hopeful that this would lead policy makers to taking proxy indicators more seriously thanks sahil this is a really critical issue that one needs deeper to dive into much deeper anand any last thoughts that you'd like to share with us perhaps uh, how this could be an opportunity for us to really rethink the kind of institutional structures we need to better regulate the surveillance relationship between citizens and state right so i think at the highest level we need to reevaluate the the proportionality doctrine itself uh from from the point of view of judicial review of uh some of these measures right i mean i think it has to be a more vibrant check of how something is working in reality a very good example uh, from the supreme court itself a precedent is the way that it looked at the lie detector tests and narco analysis versus the way it looked at aadhar right uh all of this that the court keeps saying potential for abuse is not a ground and so on it all vanished into thin air when the court had struck down the use of lie detector even for investigation purposes and that was really because it evaluated the technology so i think a broader you know evaluation of technology at the highest level into the way the court uh, looks at questions of uh, state citizen relationship and rights uh, violation is required because we are really living in a technology driven environment and like sahil pointed out i think there will be much more of that and not less in the days to come uh, post uh, covid the second aspect of course is how do we uh, strengthen our institutions and there i think uh, there is there is need for the state to take a more behavioral perspective rather than technocratic view of things right how are people actually sort of engaging with technology a lot more work has to happen there and uh, there i must uh, commend actually cpr for doing some such work uh, including the recently uh, you know launched a state capacity uh, initiative right because i think uh, there is a huge relevance for people from the world of sociology anthropology and and other disciplines to come together to understand how is the indian citizenry actually engaging with these new arms of the state right because all institutional responses and reform can only happen once we have that understanding currently i think where we are really suffering is that we don't have that understanding and therefore the way we think about it is sure there is an etio there is a task force there is a ministry of electronics and yes of course let's bring some few people from you know civil society and so on i actually think this is all basically flawed what is the correct answer i don't know that answer but i think that answer will only come once we have more ground up perspectives on how citizens citizens are actually engaging with all these 
you know, new ways of bringing efficiency into the state. It's of course a larger debate. But what we, what I can immediately say, of course, is we there are certain things that we should not do, right? I mean, what what is it that we should do? I don't know the real answers to that. But we certainly cannot merge functions like data custodianship and uh, regulatory functions in one entity, as we did with the UIDAI, or we seem to be doing with some of the other entities as well that we are today talking about creating. That is a strict no-go zone. So I, I think we have some clarity on the no-go zones. But on the where to go from here, I think it's, it's up to all of us really to create uh, that scholarship, provide that guidance, and then hopefully from there, uh, think of the state, including these perspectives in their uh, reformative uh, agenda. Thanks, Anand. I, I really do think that uh, these different perspectives we've been discussing are going to be so critical in deepening our understanding of the true impact of the coronavirus pandemic in the days to come. There's absolutely no doubt that technology has played a crucial role in enabling an effective and proactive response to the pandemic, certainly in some countries. But it also raises crucial issues about the relationship between citizens, states, and the market. It brings important questions into play about the kinds of institutional arrangements we need to create appropriate legal regimes to protect rights and fuel innovation. Sahil and Anand, thank you so much for this very important conversation. Really appreciate your time here. Thank you for joining us. This is the Center for Policy Research's eighth episode on the impact of the unfolding coronavirus pandemic in India. Stay tuned for future episodes. To learn more about all our COVID-19 related analysis, follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India or visit our COVID-19 website at www.cprindia.org slash COVID-19. Dash